Is it possible to know if knowing or wisdom is an illusion itself? If it's an illusion, it's not wisdom. And the kind of wisdom that we're aiming for is intuitive. When you experience intuitive wisdom, it's palpable. It speaks to you in a way that no conjuring, no mental fabrication can speak. It's an inner native knowledge that emerges from the depths and is unmistakable, unshakable. Something shifts. The awareness, the impact, the understanding, the the intuitive knowing that comes in, in our heart. This is something to open up for yourself. And that, that's an expanded awareness. Opening up, broadening it, but focusing. Focus that you're not in a fuzzy state so that you really know what you're feeling. Not vague, ambiguous, doubt, uncertain, unsure, or scared to feel. Scared to feel means it's going to hurt. I don't want to feel it, so it stays fuzzy. And fuzzy is safe. Fuzzy is like when the camera is not in focus, you take a picture, you don't even know what you've photographed. But we want really to focus in and see how flawed is our perception. But if we don't know what we're feeling, how can we find the truth behind that? How can we penetrate through to the truth beneath our perceptions of what we think we're feeling? Much of our ability to feel is distorted by memory, association, pain, trauma. This fear of feeling it compounds the blindness, compounds the delusion, and we're easily knocked off balance. We're easily inflamed. We're easily angered, reactive, or defeated, destroyed by the tiniest insult. You have some ground under your feet, and you're not frightened to know the sensations because the sensations in the body speak. The voice of the body is a profound clue to what we're holding, what we're clinging to. And we want our mind to be so clear and stilled. This is what samadhi is all about. Samadhi is really learning how to hear better, to see better. And lo and behold, the secrets are all within our own present moment. In the present moment, we develop the tools to know and understand and then to cut through to the emptiness so that we no longer cling, so that we can relinquish. That's how we can get to the complete relinquishment, which is patinisada, relinquishment of self. The letting go happens at many stages. We feel a weariness, a nibida, and then we feel vairaga, detachment. But we do, we develop letting go, letting go, in many, many stages. And then niroda, cessation. And then we start to experience patinisada. And then we experience the release, the the yata bhutanyana dasana, which is knowing the truth of the way things are just as they are. And they're empty. 
we come to this emptiness and the whole world, our held world, and by world you could spell that W-H-I-R-L-E-D because it's just been whirling for lifetimes. And then suddenly it cracks open because we see there's nothing there. The mind just knows to stop. And this is the Buddha's message to us. It's a third noble truth moment. There's a cessation moment when we wake up to the reality. It's not what we thought it was. We can't get there through thinking. When we can let go of thought, we can penetrate through to the ending of suffering. The breath is an object that we use as long as we're alive and conscious beings. We can observe the breath moving. It's dynamic. By observing the breath, it's just brilliant to watch because we have to pay such precise attention not to miss. It's constantly changing. So right away we learn about impermanence. And impermanence is just the most amazing thing to know to discover the impermanence of all conditioned things. This is the way to conquer death. That's the beginning of the five khandhas of liberation. What? (laughs) The five khandhas, the five aggregates of liberation are sila, samadhi, and panya, niroda, and yatabhuta, nyanadasana. So that's virtue, the concentration or the cultivation of stillness of heart, or bhavana, the stilling of the formations, and panya, which is wisdom, and then niroda, which is the cessation, and the understanding, the liberating insight into the way things are. When you disentangle things, take them apart, Take the body apart. Take a car apart. Let's start with a car. It's less messy. (laughs) Where is the car? If you get wheels and upholstery and lights and windshield, glass, fenders, radiator, car engines. I used to ride a motorcycle, believe it or not. (laughs) I don't do that anymore. I tried to ride the wheel of Dhamma. (laughs) One wheel. One point. Go to the center. So then where is the car? Where is your Buick in all those bits? They're just a composite. It's a concept. And so is this person. It's just a concept. Is the person in the liver or in your chest? If you take the legs away. Oh my, it reminds me of walking across a bridge over the Ganges River in 1973. This laywoman with long braids, jeans. Can you picture it? And there's a stump, a stump sitting on the bridge. It's a human being, but it's a stump. No legs, no arms, a stump of a body and a head. 
And I'm walking across the bridge, and I see this thing. It was so frightening. I could tell what it was, but I couldn't put it together. I couldn't process it. But I knew I had to walk past this person, and I wanted to be friendly and not contract or or look awkward, as we sometimes do when we see people that are disabled or in a very bad state. So I tried my best to smile and look friendly and, and pleased. But I felt very sad and a bit horrified, actually. And this being smiled at me with so much love and joy, I just could not believe it. I couldn't, I couldn't put it together. How could this human being who looked so miserable, having no legs, no arms, just a head and a torso, with a cloth spread neatly on the ground, and there was money because people were tossing coins. But he exuded this joy that even to this day I can see. And I thought, this is one of the happiest people I've ever met. So where is the being? How much has to be missing before we're not a being anymore? This is not how a being is to be construed according to how whole the body is. Because the body is really not what we are. And that was my first glimmer of that. It was a huge gift of Dhamma to see this being so at peace with his condition. And I started to think of my body very differently. Wow, what would I do if I were in that condition? Could I be so peaceful and could I smile at everybody? All I could think was I'd be crying my eyes out. But then he gave me a possibility. No, you could be at peace too, like this. It was exhilarating, absolutely exhilarating. I didn't know that the image of that wonderful man would come up. I was crossing a bridge over troubled waters. (laughs) There are times when it's important to just be with the breath, just be with the form, feeling the sensation of the body formation, and just knowing them not with a a purposeful investigation, but just through being so aware that the sensations themselves speak. It's, again, listening, listening not with that discriminating thought and evaluation. And certainly when we develop more concentration, the thought and evaluation falls away. And then the mind becomes so still, our concentration can then deepen and deepen as mindfulness is purified. The purification of mindfulness comes through deep concentration. Not that the Eightfold Path is linear, but notice in the samadhi part, the cultivation elements of the Eightfold Path are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. They work together very, very much. Investigation of dhammas is a factor of enlightenment. So when we emerge 
from concentration, we can then reflect. Just reflect by knowing, knowing and listening to where we have crossed. What bridge have we uh, traversed? That would be the moment for seeing into the experience. It's an investigation with satipanya, wise, reflective, penetrating knowing. Question, could you speak about our feelings of judgment, anger, and hatred towards those who commit harm and how we might practice with them? Have you dealt with such experiences yourself? Yes, I have. In my own family history, for sure. Yeah, my teacher in India was murdered my own spiritual teacher. He was shot, and when his assailant shot him, he said, oh, you you poor man, you're going to go to jail for this. That was his response. Great compassion. I think that judgment, anger, and hatred come from our own undeveloped ability to hold such terrible acts of violence. This practice is really a way for us to strengthen our hearts, strengthen our capacity to hold such violence. It's all around us. I mean, there's no end to the violence that's committed every day in this world. Cruelty and torture of other beings what we can take away from this is not to condone their acts, but not to hate the being, not to judge the being, not to be angry at the being, to know that this is really unskillful. These actions are not acceptable, but they happen. When people act in this way, when society punishes with the death penalty, they're basically turning their backs on these people and saying, you're hopeless, irredeemable. If we don't hate the being, if we have that much trust in the possibility for reformation, we have incredible compassion for these beings because they are going to really suffer the results of their actions. The fires of the worst realms will be on their heads. So the punishment comes through the action. This is karmic law. It's a powerful law. It's like a wheel unto itself. It turns in a particular way. Evil conduct will bear very painful karma. And it isn't for us to execute it. They execute themselves. It's a mystery not for us to know the sphere of karma. The range of karma is unknowable, but we can certainly know the results of good karma. And if it's possible to bring justice to these beings, it would be to teach them how to meditate. I don't know if you've ever seen this film called doing time, doing vipassana. 
That's a good example, right? These hardcore criminals at the end of the course that Gwenkaji taught, weeping into the arms of their jailers, recognizing the harm they've caused, for them already was a hell realm. They couldn't live with themselves just to remember that. Society makes its judgments and let us be the last to judge and just keep our minds on our own acts and not execute anyone in our hearts by cutting them off from the stream of compassion that is possible. I was contemplating this. Rape and torture. We rape our own goodness over and over again because of our lack of trust in this process. We execute ourselves over and over again with our own delusion and our own impatience about this process, growing in truth. We must examine that and see how much we're clinging and see every possible moment that we can let go of clinging. And then when we cling again, we must refrain from that because we disrupt. It's like a subterfuge. We constantly undermine ourselves when actually we are our own liberators. We are powerful beyond our understanding. And the Buddha empowers us with this teaching. He gives us a map, a template, a direction, a compass. It points in one direction and in one direction only. That is freedom. Freedom from view of this self as as real, as something to be fed and propped up and clung to. And when we reflect on the qualities of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, suffering, and emptiness, there's no self. We come to the truth of what this body-mind composite, these formations are or are not. And then they serve for us as a precious vehicle. And it's a vehicle to prepare us for the next step, which may happen before death or through the death of the body. The real death is the death of delusion. And this insight into impermanence, suffering, and emptiness, and the possibility of cessation and relinquishment These are the practices that lead us to liberation. They give us the freedom from the cycle of existence. Born, get old, get sick, and die. Then born again and again. Even devas, they might be reborn in a lower realm because of some unfinished business, unfinished karmic residue. So it's not enough just to get to heaven realm. Ajahn Chah made a solemn vow as a monk in his fifth rains retreat. I dedicate my body and mind, my whole life, 
to the practice of the Lord Buddha's teachings in their entirety. I will realize the truth in this lifetime. I will let go of everything and follow the teachings. No matter how much suffering and difficulty I have to endure, I will persevere. Otherwise, there will be no end to my doubts. I must make this life as even and continuous as a single day and night. I will abandon attachments to mind and body and follow the Buddha's teachings until I know their truth for myself. And from Shantideva, a wonderful Tibetan practitioner and saint, these verses about practicing compassion. For as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I too remain to dispel the misery of the world. There's not something wrong when we're suffering. If we can hold our suffering with that kind of mind, This is a suffering being. It's bound to suffer. Manipulate it as we try. Turn it this way and that way. Control things. Adjust conditions as we may try. It will always fall back into some mode of suffering or other until it breathes its last. Because it's just a vehicle. It's a vehicle to take us to freedom, to develop spiritually. It's just a vehicle. And when it's an old coat, we hang it up. We try not to kill ourselves or harm ourselves as much as possible, but to peacefully study this suffering, use this suffering as a teacher, as a gift. Once we know Once we can identify it as suffering and not cling to it, then we don't own it. The non-ownership already gives us enough freedom to work with suffering as a student of it. Then the heat gets turned up. We think we've passed all the spiritual tests we need to pass, and then we come to a, a higher point on the mountain to overcome, to climb beyond. It seems endless. It keeps dragging us into the place of no direction, the directionless, the deathless, the place of no death. But sometimes we go kicking and screaming. And if we could just go peacefully. The suffering is not the problem. It's our way of holding it that is is our obstacle. And that brings me back to the man on the bridge. I tried when I was 23 to be a nun for a few years, and I got dragged back into samsara. My parami were not developed enough. And then later, my karmic work just bit me and I was back in the monastery with a lifetime vow. 
I had never told my teacher, I'd never told Saito about my first try as a nun. But he knew, you're not leaving. You make a vow. And this vow has held me through what I thought were insurmountable trials. And now I don't kick and scream anymore. (laughs) It is possible to feel gratitude for the suffering, but it might take a little while to recognize that, oh, this is a teaching. Somebody slams you, or you beat yourself up, or you just hold old conditioning in an ancient, deluded way, and then to wake up to what you're doing so that you can put it down finally. Well, you think it's final, and then it comes back. It's a process. Surrender to that process and keep on swimming till we reach the other shore. We will reach it. Not giving up. That's what the vow is about. We commit and we do it. Over and over and over, repeating. That's what practice means, doesn't it? The same thing over and over again. The same deluded mind states, greedy mind states, hungry ghost mind states, anger, ill will. And then we keep bringing up those divine abidings to some work with the metta practice because it's the real lubricant for this liberation. Without compassion, we, we don't really rise up. The suffering of the world will not cease unless beings become enlightened. But we do make those asseverations of our own heart's innermost wish that beings be relieved of suffering as much as possible and help whoever we can. The way that insight conquers death Insight conquers death because we have insight into the three characteristics of all conditioned things, as we chanted, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, and emptiness, emptiness of self, which leads us to deliverance of mind, vimuti, which is freedom, liberation of mind. And that's how we conquer death freedom and the knowledge of the way, liberating knowledge. And all of us have glimpses of that. So if we fear death, it's because we're not seeing the truth of what we are or what we're not. Because death is is just nature. And, And then it goes back into clinging. The heat will never die. Apamado amata padang, pamado machuno padang. And that means that heedfulness is the path to deathlessness. The heedless are as if dead. If we're not paying close attention, if we're not careful in the way we act, speak, and think, then that is death. That's spiritual death. 
that's far worse to live that kind of life. But when we lead a life of heedfulness, we go beyond death. We conquer death. Angulimala actually, his name was Ahimsa, or Ahimsaka, which is odd because that means harmlessness, and then he caused so much harm. But in the end, he became harmless. He was a very gullible young man. What to do? There are many of them young kids now that are being conned into carrying explosives on their little bodies. Kids being suicide bombers. They don't know what they're doing. They're just being pushed into these terrible acts. So Angulimala is an early day example of how people can become influenced by wickedness, delusion. So I thought we could do a little closing chant. This is based on a scripture. It's from the Kanda Sarita. And I've adapted it a little bit. Because remembering this man on the bridge, there are these lines which go something like this. May all sentient beings receive my metta. May all one-footed beings receive my metta. May all two-footed beings receive my metta. May all four-footed beings receive my metta. May all beings with no feet receive my metta. But this is unequivocal. We're not saying, oh, only if they behave. It's not about liking and not liking, but about sending goodwill even to people that have no idea what that is, haven't learned about goodwill, because they probably were so badly violated themselves. So they have so much hatred in their hearts. And they perpetuate the misery. So then it has to stop here. It has to stop with us. And it can, if we have enough wisdom not to bear hatred, especially towards ourselves, beginning with ourselves. Let's do the uh, closing homage. <laughs> <laughs>